0: Hi, my loves. Kate here. I know you're tired of people saying, we are in an unprecedented time under unprecedented circumstances. But here we are. We are acutely aware of our fragility and of our brokenness, both individually and systemically. This week, I wanted to highlight one of my favorite voices who is doing the hard work of racial justice. He is the type of person who lets himself be cracked open to the pain of others. This is the type of love that pushes outward instead of falling inward. This is the love required of the work of justice. May the love and work of justice we find in stories like Wes Moore's open us up to the pain of this moment. May we be awake and aware to the places where racism and inequality exist in our hearts, in our communities and in our institutions may we be ruthless in our love ready to root out the evil that chokes the air from our very lungs so here he is an unstoppable force for good westmore hi i'm kate bowler and this is everything happens This podcast is about those moments when life just cracks open and how people move forward from there. Wes Moore grew up in a tough neighborhood in Baltimore and lost his father at a young age. And there were many moments when his life really could have gone off the rails. But now he's an incredible justice warrior and storyteller. He's a best-selling author, a television producer, and a decorated army officer. He founded Bridge EDU which helps students transition from high school to college, and he leads the Robin Hood Foundation, which helps fund schools and food pantries and shelters in New York City. He wrote the best-selling book, The Other Wes Moore, which we'll be talking about today. Now, Wes has a clear position on what it takes to make it in America. Not just hard work, not just luck, but something Americans don't usually talk about as much. The life-giving help of other people. Wes, I am so lucky that you're here today.
1: It is absolutely my honor, Kate. Thank you so much. And thank you for who you are.
0: Oh, well, um, I will bring my little, I'm sad to be so Canadian so early on, but I will say <laughs> that uh, as a Canadian, I do find it really striking about the mythology of this country, with its obsession about who's deserving and who's not. Like the sense that life is always fair or with hard work and hustle or that people should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But your book starts on a totally different note. Would you mind reading that first paragraph of your book for us?
1: Absolutely. This is the story of two boys living in Baltimore with similar histories and an identical name, Westmore. One of us is free and has experienced things that he never knew to dream about as a kid. The other will spend every day until his death behind bars for an armed robbery that left a police officer and father of five dead. The chilling truth is that his story could have been mine. The tragedy is that my story could have been his. Our stories are obviously so specific to our two lives, but I hope they will illuminate the crucial inflection points in every life, the sudden moments of decision where our paths diverge and our fates are sealed. It's unsettling to know how little separates each of us from another life altogether.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. Well, tell me how and why you decided to start Pursuing getting to know that other man named Westmore
1: you know it's um it's interesting because there is this idea in this form of a mythology around the American dream, yeah, right. And first, as if that dream is not one that that Canadians or Brazilians <laughs> or Ghanaians or anyone else hold, but it's it's this dream of mobility, right yeah. It's this dream that you can sacrifice now. And it mm-hmm. will benefit you or at least benefit your children or future generations, some of whom you might not ever even meet. Mm-hmm. But there is this idea that tomorrow will be better than today. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I remember it around the same time that I was receiving a Rhodes Scholarship and I was getting ready to go to England. And, uh, you know, I was one of 32 Americans and one of 90 students from around the world who, who got, received this scholarship. Wow. Um, there was oftentimes this celebration where, you know, you're on the— the, the front page of the local paper and yeah. people talking about how wonderful this is. And in the same newspaper, they have a whole series of articles about this robbery that left a police officer dead. Mm. And the thing that was really striking was at the same time, while the world was largely celebrating yeah. where I was and what I was doing, there was a larger castigation of Wes. And the real... In-depth analysis about how either one of us got to where we got was absent. Mm. It was just simply a celebration and a castigation, which was really striking. And I found myself when I was then overseas having all these questions that I knew I wanted answers to, and I and I was curious about. And I knew Wes was the only one that could answer them. So one day I just decided to write him a note. Mm. And uh, and literally the first note that I wrote him. Uh, it was like a letter, and you're saying like, "Hey, Wes, you know, my name is Wes. Yeah. Here's how I heard about you, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and this whole and all these questions." And then he wrote this letter back to me, and and you know, he didn't have to write back, yeah. right? But you know, but I received a letter back from him a month later from Jessup Correctional Institution, and that letter uh, was insightful and thoughtful and and interesting, and showed how interested he was, and uh, and it only led to more questions, and mm-hmm. then that one letter turned to dozens of letters. Those dozens of letters turned to dozens of visits, and that really became the premise and the base for wanting to tell this story.
0: And it struck me, too, the kind of generosity with which you met each other. Like, you're both looking for answers there. And for the person who hasn't read the book, can you tell me some of the things that you discovered that made you seem to have these parallel lives?
1: Yeah, and this goes to the power of individual decisions. I remember once a student asked me, and they said, are certain decisions more important than others? Yeah. And I told him, I thought that was a really interesting question. And, and the honest answer is yes. I mean, certain decisions are more important than others. The, the problem is we don't know which ones are which.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. I've, I thought of this the other day. Like every day is filled with possibilities and inevitabilities with like only yes. the slenderest separation between them. Like how do you figure that out?
1: That's right. And that's so beautifully put. And it's absolutely right. Where there are decisions, you know, that we are making every day. I mean, both you and I, Kate. I mean, yeah. you know, before the end of today, we're going to make 25 decisions that are going to help to determine what tomorrow is going to look like. Yeah, that's right. right? Uh, and, that's, and that's an everyday human reality, right? Yeah. Um, the, and so yeah. when we're making these decisions, sometimes we make decisions that we think are massive. Sometimes we make decisions that we think are really small, but we really don't have an idea about consequences of the decisions before, un- until, you know, well after sometimes the decisions are made. And so, you know, my decision to write Wes, I did not think that, you know, first I wasn't sure if would even write back, mm. but I definitely didn't think that this was something that was going to change the destiny of my life or or something that's going to completely alter the way I think about my existence. But it did. And I'm sure when Wes decided to write me back, I'm sure Wes didn't look at it and say, oh man, I better take this letter seriously because this could really change everything for me. I think he just decided to write a letter uh, to someone who wrote him in prison. And next thing you know, this now became a bond and a connection that has in many ways changed, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the, the course of both of our lives. So I think when I first reached out to him, the idea of saying, okay, here's a guy who comes from the same city, same mm. neighborhood. We both grew up in single-parent households. You know, we both uh, had academic and, and disciplinary troubles. You know, we both, uh, you know, had handcuffs on our wrists at very young age. Mm. But here I am, and at that time, here I am in England. Uh, studying, and here he is at that time. Now in, in in the start of what is a life sentence for him, mm. you know how exactly does that happen, and how do we get there? And and the you know that it was about much more than just a shared name. I think that's what motivated it yeah. initially. Um, but I don't think that either one of us knew that the small what we thought was the small decision, either to write him or for him to write back, would have turned into what it uh, what it's turned into.
0: Well, I love the way your book. Alternates between your two lives, and like you both begin in this really, really terrible place. Your dad had this awful experience at the hospital that I, that, I mean struck me so much because I, when I was really really sick and very, um openly, <laughs> dying, I went to the ER and uh, they sent me home with Pepto Bismol, and like, and like I went back again and again and like begging for a diagnosis. So I eventually got some kind of treatment, but like. Your dad didn't get that second chance can you That's tell right. me a bit about what happened
1: so he was a uh, a radio journalist you know the, the the breadwinner of our family and he was complaining because he felt like something was going on with his throat and uh he actually finished what turned out to be his final show one evening and and that night he was trying to get sleep and he couldn't sleep uh, because his throat was bothering so much to the point that he was trying to actually take medication, take, uh, you know, Tylenol or yeah. you know, something along those lines, and, and, and it wasn't going down his throat. Um, he then goes to the hospital the next morning. Um, you know, he, he actually took himself because my mom was, was going to take us to school yeah. or to daycare. And when he showed up, he was tired because he hadn't slept. Um, he was, you know, looked disheveled. And there was an assumption that he did not have insurance. And he was trying to explain, uh, but, you know, but obviously uh, wasn't hurt. And so he was sent home with the simple instructions to get some rest. And if it gets worse, to, you know, to let them know. And went home, and uh, five hours after he got home, he died. Mm -hmm. And literally died right in front of us. You know, he he was suffering from something called acute epiglottitis. Our epiglottis is a a little flap Hmm. of skin. And every time that we speak or every time that we chew or every time we breathe, it it lifts up and it's allowing air into your body. And essentially what acute epiglottitis is, it's where the epiglottis gets so swollen that it sits on top of the windpipe and is unable to lift itself. So basically his body was suffocating itself. And um, when the medical personnel came, my mother, you know, uh, he collapsed right in front of us. My mother then called 911 when they came um, at that time. They didn't have the medical understanding of there's actually a, a technology and a tool now that actually can lift, stick something in the throat and lift up the epiglottis to give air. Yeah. Uh, but that wasn't around then, and, and he passed. And so at that time, you know, uh, instantaneously and, and unexpectedly, uh, my mother became a widow. Yeah. And she was now going to raise these three kids In a in a really complex neighborhood on her own, and I think that very quickly became too overwhelming for her.
0: Your mom's reaction and her her search for like agency. I mean, it was so striking to me how she's struggling with what ifs and she's second guessing herself about what she might have done differently. And then she even establishes this fund to train paramedics on the technique that might have saved your dad's life, like. Yeah. What a search for, like, traction in a situation in which there should have been a different way.
1: Yeah, and I love the way you phrased that because I think that's what she was just fundamentally looking for was a sense of, of, of grounding when everything else feels like it's sinking around you, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, her focus at that time became... I just want to make sure that no one ever has to feel this way that wow. I feel. Yeah. Especially for something that's that's preventable. It's especially for something that doesn't have to be that, sh- that shouldn't have to be the case. Um I also think that that was one of my mother's core ways of dealing with that pain yeah. and dealing with the fact that she now was going to be living a life forever and that this was not a life that she had prepared for
0: oh, or chosen. And, uh, yeah, that's or chosen. right. Like that's the that's the feeling like I didn't choose this. Like no. I I did find I with my own diagnosis, I did find that moment totally changed my view of how much we control our own lives.
1: Yes. Yes. And it it strengthens that fundamental empathy. Yes. Um wow. you know because we're we're all we're all dealing with things. Yeah. And the truth is, is that we don't know what someone else is dealing with when they're dealing with it. Because oftentimes people just, you know, put on the brave face. And there's, there's a great poem by, by Paul Lawrence Dunbar where it's called We Wear the Mask. Hmm. And he says, we wear the mask that grins and lies and it hides our teeth and it shades our eyes. This debt we pay for human guile with bleeding and broken hearts, we smile. And you realize oh, how many people God. are walking around wearing the mask every single day. They're, yeah. they're, they're taking on pain and they're internalizing a pain that they are then dealing with all on their own. Yeah. And so our job, our exclusive goal, should be to do what we can do to ease the pain that someone else might be feeling. And it, it comes back to the idea of, you know, do we want to live with a sympathetic love or Mm. do we wanna live with an empathetic love?
0: Mm, Yeah, tell me the difference, I like this already.
1: Well, you know, I think cause a sympathetic love is a love where you're basically saying, well, I'm doing this because I feel bad for you.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: An empathetic love is, I do this because your pain is also mine.
0: Well, that's honestly, like that struck me over and over again in your book, is like your family gets cracked open in a way that everyone is desperate to avoid. Like no one wants the moment where there's the before and the after and before is so much better. Yeah. And then after though, like, and you're, you're the distinction between like sympathy and empathy. Like you let yourself then be cracked open to the pain of others in a way that like pushes out instead of like folds itself back in. You, you've really chosen, I, I, do you think it's a choice? I, I kind of think it's a choice.
1: I, you know, I, I I do think it's a choice, but I I think it's something that, uh, you know, if all of us just take a moment to appreciate and understand our own circumstances, I think people will realize that this is not a choice. That this is this is a fundamental moral and societal obligation. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That yeah. we have. Yeah.
1: But you know, it was really interesting and and and, and actually really informative was this was a real growth experience, even telling the stories of these two boys for me. I wanted to write this story so we can really take the reader on a journey, yeah. right? Where, you know, you can look at the back flap and, and get, oh, yeah, you know, two guys, same name, one's in jail, one's night. Got it, right? But let's start the book at its most elementary point. Let's start the book with a kid who's four who watches his father die in front of him. Yeah. And let's start the book with another kid who's six who meets his father for the first time. Mm. and start there. And then let's go on a journey about the decisions that these boys were making, the policies that were in place that were impacting their lives, the people who they had in their lives who were helping them to make those decisions, mm-hmm. and the context in which all of those decisions were being made. And then let's help people to understand that that initial conclusion that we all might have gotten to quickly, you know, which in fairness is oftentimes, you know, glib and incomplete. Yeah. Um is actually much more complex than people think because you know one thing I tried to show with the with the book was there were specific moments in both of our lives that helped to determine the rest of our lives. Yeah, and some of those moments were things that we had no control over. Yeah, it wasn't like if yeah yeah yeah, yeah you yeah. know but, but like I think about I think about you know kind of in, you know one of the one of the first things we talk about was was you know Wes's mother was the first one in her family to go to college. She graduated from Baltimore City Community College with honors and then got accepted to Johns Hopkins University. Mm. And then as she's a student at Johns Hopkins University, first one in her family go to college, she then receives a letter indicating that her Pell Grants were cut. And the Pell Grants is a program that really helps under-resourced and low-income students uh, receive support in order to pay for the cost of higher education. And so when his mother has her Pell Grants cut for the second time in three years, she now realizes that she cannot afford to finish school. And she never went back. Hmm. And so she's now walking around with debt, no degree. And I can't help but think how different her life could have been had she had the chance to finish college. Because it's not just about the piece of paper, right? It's about that as she moved up in education, her networks would have changed. Her friendships would have changed. Her connections would have changed. And now you fast forward 20 years later when it's not just Wes, but it's Wes's older brother, her oldest child, who is now getting picked up on charges of murder. Mm. And you think about how these things have consequences and how those type of decisions, the decision to cut the Pell Grant program, it did not just impact Mary Moore. It impacted Wes. Yeah because it now limited the opportunities that he, a young man who was simply born into this situation, it limited the opportunities that he was going to have for his life. And so, you know, when we talk about individual decision-making, and I feel like there's a real and core and distinct marriage between the two, that it's both personal responsibility and it's societal responsibility. Mm. But oftentimes, we talk about personal responsibility as if that becomes the end-all, be-all and thing that can, you know, increase mobility. And frankly, it's not. There is a marriage of the two. And both have to be understood when we think about where people are.
0: Like you, I had a moment where my life got really shiny. So you become a Rhodes Scholar, like I'm finding a ladder and I'm just climbing it. <laughs> and all of a sudden right. I have a job and it's, it's just the, one of the best jobs in the field. And yeah. I'm experiencing that trajectory of unlimited possibility. And then the second I get sick, everyone rushes in with an explanation of why tragedy lands on me. So mm. maybe I'm sick because I ate the wrong things or maybe I had the wrong habits or maybe I didn't pick the right healthcare provider but from, from the first moment that you reject these simplistic reasons why some people's lives end in tragedy and others in triumph, like, how, how do you convince people who want to believe that you never, ever could have turned out to be the other was more?
1: Hmm. You know, people, after they read the story, uh, will oftentimes come up to me and say, you know, I, I would have never have known. Hmm. You know, looking at you now, Kate, people would say, I would have never known how sick you were. Yeah. Yeah, You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And that's saying something beauty about your journey and your triumph, right? The fact that you stand here, not just just powerful, but empowered, right? And empowering to other people because you were now, you know, you went through the fire Mm. and you came out from that fire stronger.
0: Oh, Wes, you are a preacher. Come on down to the Divinity (laughs) School. I love you. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) No, but I think that there's something beautiful about Mm -hmm. that. But I I think what it also means is people must be vulnerable enough to be able to understand your journey.
0: Yeah, like take off the mask. I love that poem. Yes. But like the heartache underneath is that like sometimes things just come undone and the rest is... You know, the rest is beautiful, too, but so much of it hides the reality that at some point it might actually not have worked out.
1: Yes, yes. I'm glad that I went through what I had to go through because I feel like it gave you a sense of armor. Mm. And, and I just feel like there's nothing that I will ever, ever see again, because of my life experiences, both growing up, my time, uh, profession, my time in the military, yeah. there is nothing I will ever see in my life that is ever going to make me flinch. <laughs> I and like I just that. feel like my life prepared yeah. me for that, yeah. right, where, where I have an armor that is pretty thick now yeah and it's because of the preparation like every every experience was just it was it was throwing another you know it was throwing another piece of metal on you throwing another piece of metal on and now yeah. you're walking around like you know like like iron man like <laughs> iron woman you know what i mean like like you're prepared you're yeah. prepared for battle because of the experience you've had now when you're going through it yeah it, it it doesn't feel that way.
0: No, it just feels when like you're, you're going, inside out.
1: <laughs> yes. When you're going through it, there is nothing more painful, nothing more more hurtful yeah. when you feel like this is my reality and it's not going to change, hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um you know, when I think about the fact that um there are so many reasons and so many things that my mom could have easily just given up. Yeah. Um just said it, you know, she couldn't do it and and where every single moment where life, as soon as she felt like she was getting her head above water, where life just go ahead and pushes her head down again. Yeah. Um, you know, she, in addition to raising her kids, she was also dealing with the fact that she had to move back in, you know, with her, with her parents, yeah. uh, was helping to take care of her parents while also taking care of her children. Wow. And by the way, didn't get her first full-time job with benefits until I was 14 years old. Oh my so she's working three different jobs Literally waking up at the crack of dawn, going to her first job, wasn't even taking a school because she was already out the door. Mm. By the time she got in from her last job, we were already asleep. Oh. This was her reality. And it was all that she knew how to do. She got her first full-time job with benefits when I was 14 years old. The first job she ever got that gave her retirement, that gave her health care, that gave her you know reliable hours. Yeah, And she never stopped fighting. But she, what she did was she found the thing to fight for and for mm. her it was her kids and and I learned it from my mom the idea that if you never forget what you're fighting for yeah. you'll never stop fighting mm. Yeah. And that's something I think we all have to embrace. Find that thing that you're fighting for and you will never stop fighting.
0: <laughs> it's like, it's a quote, and as I'm embarrassed to say, it's like a quote I keep in my bathroom because then I can like do my hair and like read it. But uh, it always says something like, like, you never know how strong you are until you know how strong love has made you. And like, mm. I do find like that feeling of being broken open connects so deeply to a sense of agency when I look at my, when I look at my son. And like yes. wanting to be the person, like wanting to be the person, like I was always so afraid of being the thing that happens to him. Because like mm. when you're sick, like you are the bomb that goes off, like you are the tragedy. Yeah. And then wanting to be the kind of person that shows him instead that in the midst of pain, like there is beauty and truth there. And if mm. I can then show him the way through, then I'm the kind of person who's, who's put on him that kind of armor you're describing. Like, because because that's just it. Right. Is like you can't promise anyone you work with that, like, their life is not actually just going to get harder in so many ways. Mm
1: -hmm. You're absolutely right. You know, Robin Hood has been around for 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 30 years Mm -hmm. and, and you know, works with millions of New Yorkers Mm -hmm. and people who are around the country who find themselves in this horrific and this uh, incredibly nasty cycle of poverty.
0: Yeah. that we have
1: within our society. And, and you're right, where, you know, you can't guarantee that you can fix things overnight. I mean, nobody can. Yeah. But you can guarantee to everybody who that happens to be their current reality, you can guarantee that they're not fighting it alone,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that we all collectively are bringing this empathetic love to this fight. We're bringing an impatience to this fight and honestly there's a real personal sense of motivation behind it because of the fact i mean i know i stand here because there were people who believed in me before i was ready to believe in myself mm. right i stand here be- because there were people who believed that this child this son of of an immigrant deserved an opportunity to experience an an, an american promise just as any other child yeah and that there was never going to be any any accidents of my birth not being black not being poor not being from baltimore not being from the bronx not being fatherless mm. that was ever going to define me or that was ever going to limit me mm. and and i think that that's the way that 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 we have to approach our work is that our work isn't simply about how do you address food or how do you address housing or how do you address transportation or how do you address whatever yeah. it's how do you it's how do you lift up freedom mm. Mm -hmm. Freedom, a Mm -hmm. basic freedom Mm -hmm. and a basic belief that your life is yours and your destiny is yours and should not be controlled by a circumstance or a structural limitation that was put in place oftentimes before you were even born. There's something so fundamentally, not just un-American, but there's something so fundamentally inhumane
0: about that. Oh, man, Wes, when you describe stuff like this, I feel like, yes, this is a prosperity gospel. I can believe it. Yes. Because, like, it's not the sort that says, um, that puts the burden on the sufferer. It's the kind that places the obligation on the shoulders of everyone. And, like, can you tell me that one moment then where you figured out that life-giving community is the only way forward? Like, when did you figure that out?
1: You know, the first time that I think I actually had it really kind of explained to me, and, and I'm, I'm going to be very honest, I think at this moment I did not really fully understand it. Yeah. Uh, I think it took a little while for me to get it, but it happened when I was about 13 years old, and, uh, and I really didn't understand it at that time. <laughs> um, but I, I, was, I, I was sent away to a military school when I was 13,
0: mm.
1: and, uh, and that's because of some issues that I was getting into back at home, and so I had a mandatory year in military school, but in the first... Four days, I'd run away five times. Wow. And they had these big black gates that surrounded the school, and they always told us, if you don't like it here, there's a train station going anytime you want. And so I would just take them up on their offer and I'll <laughs> shoot <there laughs> the gates. <laughs> and they kept finding me. And, and and the second to last time I tried to run away, um, they found me in the middle of the woods because they had drawn me a map on how to get to the train station. And they drew me a map because they said it was so pathetic that I kept on getting lost. But the map was fake. The map took me to the middle of the woods. Stop. They just enjoyed watching me do circles Stop in the it. woods. So it's all true. And so they brought me back to campus. And, uh, and we're in the middle of something called plea system. So there's no outside communication, no radio, phone, television, nothing. You're either going to succeed as a team mm. or you will fail mm. as a team. And the choice was completely yours. And but they said, if we don't make an exception, we're going to lose them. So they said more. You've got five minutes to make a phone call. Call whoever you want. And I decided to uh, call the only number that I knew, which was my mom. Yeah. And uh, and I'm calling her. I'm complaining. And I'm like, you know, mommy, you know, this is crazy. But I'm like, listen, thank you for this wonderful opportunity. But I'm really (laughs) ready to go home and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) And, And then she stopped me and she said, too many people have sacrificed for you to be there, and too many people are rooting for you. And you have to understand it is not all about you. Mm. And that was the first time, and again, I, I have to admit, I mean, I went to bed that night just <laughs> like, as angry as I went to bed <laughs> the night sure. before. I mean, I was, I was so upset. And, uh, but that was the first time I've really ever heard it explained to me mm. in that way that we really do live in a completely interconnected society. Yeah,
0: you are not your own. You're like
1: not your own. Yeah, You're a piece of something big and beautiful and bright yeah. if you so choose. And this beautiful experiment that's going on right now, yeah. your voice and your presence in it, it does matter. You have to have a level of humility
0: yeah, to that's it. right. that's right. But
1: that humility must be an empowered humility. Yeah. And it's how I think we have to ap- approach our collective existence.
0: Man, that's like – because that's the thing that hit me like a sledgehammer. Like after, after everything came apart, it was, it was the you are not special. Only yeah. in so far as like I don't get to be the exception to the rule yes. that, that pain can visit us all. But like it was sim- simultaneously an experience in which I have felt more loved in my whole life because everyone just gathered around to fill in all the cracks. Yes, I'm like, and I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't come to the end of myself.
1: Yes, yes, and the perspective that that gives you afterwards, where where you were, you were in gentle and protective hands. Yeah, yeah. Right, the entire time, and you made out of a very dark place, you made it, and now you stand in a glorious light. Hmm. So there's something really beautiful about that, and and I think there's also something that I know, there's a certain survivor's guilt.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: That comes along. With
0: yeah, it. yeah. Do you have that? Like, was that a dynamic that you experienced when you were interacting with other Wes?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I just every day, every day. Yeah, every day, and 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 especially when you know that so many of the factors that led you through were things that you did not control right
0: yeah no i don't have a cancer lab and i like really and like i apparently don't set the policies for healthcare, and uh yeah like and and like i fought so hard to get this one drug and like just that part slays me because like i remember sitting in the blood work room in atlanta and i'd have to fly there every week and of course just flying there was an exercise in like everybody donating airline points. And I remember sitting in the blood work room, which was the worst part of the day. And like, people are coughing blood into their sleeve, and everyone is slumped over and exhausted. And I'm feeling pretty low. And I look outside the window, and there's this older man hunched on the seat waiting for the bus. And I can tell he's written very poorly the instructions that the doctor gave him on a scrap of paper. And I thought like, I'm, I'm the one that's like has the stage four diagnosis, but like, I'm pretty sure that guy's not going to make it. Mm. And like the having to constantly see the inequality, I am, I'm so grateful. And yet I am no longer my own. Yes. Wes, you have given me new language today. I am so grateful you took the time to talk with me.
1: It's absolutely my joy. Thank you so much for who you are and what you do.
0: Isn't Wes amazing? I love what his mom said. She said, too many people have invested in you. This is not about you. I think it's so important to remember that as an immigrant from Jamaica, a mom like that knew what it was like to uproot, to invest, and to believe in dreams that cost her greatly. And that kind of love changed his life. The community that surrounded him that said, we owe each other to make better choices to find a different path or to stay on course. Because we just never know what our decisions are going to mean. I mean, I once chose a college based on the fact that the brochure showed people playing rugby. I didn't play rugby. And I ended up finding one of the only schools that paid good money for international students. We just don't know where our lives are going to take us. And I hope that randomness gives us, like Wes, a greater charity toward others. I think of all the people that respond to my situation with minimizing, like at least it's not, or teaching, have you tried, or solvers who are just ready to force uh, essential oils, I suspect, on me at any moment. But I think on top of those categories, Wes Moore would add rationalizers. People want a reason why it couldn't be them that bad things happen to We need people like Wes to remind us that we are all the same. This is not about you, he would say. This is about us. Everything Happens is produced by Duke University in association with North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. Support comes from Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. And so many thanks goes to my awesome team, Beverly Abel, Allison Jones, Amanda Haidt and the Be The Change Revolutions team, Ivan Panaruski and Random House. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to Apple Podcasts and post a review. And come find me on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Kate C. Bowler. This is Everything Happens with me, Kate Bowler.